had the feeling recently that everything seems extra bad all at once in a way that exceeds even your worst and darkest thoughts well here's a theory maybe it's because everything is just related it's all one sweater and this global tug on a single thread has just unwound the whole damn thing so the big issues from climate change to corruption to racist bullshit have just been laid naked by this pandemic and there they are, mooning us, right outside the window, all at the same time. But if we know now that it's all related, we can perhaps contemplate how to win some of these long-time battles in the years to come. And one of those battles will be over markets, the subject of this week's episode. Traditional markets, like the wet markets of Asia, are being labeled as the enemy, when in fact they are our once and future salvation. That sound you just heard at the start of this episode is the quotidian pre-quarantine bustle of the Deserters Bazaar in central Tbilisi, Republic of Georgia. It's the sound you get when a butcher named Jumber with forearms like fire hydrants makes short and joyful work of a side of mutton just inches away from the person who is going to take that meat home to cook for their family. That sound is precious. That sound is endangered. That sound needs your attention and protection in the Republic of Georgia or wherever you live. This week I'm talking to a few people who know their markets very, very well. Ro Vasquez in Mexico City, Austin Bush in Bangkok, and Paul Rimple in Tbilisi. And I'll start out with Zach Froelich, an Auburn University food historian, former Roads and Kingdoms contributor, and now author of an upcoming book about regulation and risk in our food, called From Label to Table. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you are listening to The Trip, The World on Lockdown. Now, here is Zach Froelich. I mean, in any of this, had you imagined that markets would be at the center of a kind of global controversy? I did not. Um... In fact, I had planned on being a spectator like everyone else and reading about what was going on. And I had an interest in what was happening at the public health level and was surprised when people started talking about wet markets and uh, making comments about Chinese diets. And as someone who's lived in Asia and is interested in, in markets, I took an interest in the story. So just... Basic terminology, what is a wet market? Yeah, there's so this question of what is a wet market actually is important because there's a lot of confusion about that in, in the news about it. The term wet market originated in, in Asia, in Hong Kong and Singapore, and it was used to distinguish wet markets from dry markets. Dry markets is where they sell packaged goods, durable goods. Uh, a good example would be the textile markets that you'll find in a lot of Asian cities. A wet market is a place where you sell fresh produce, uh, meat, uh, fish and seafood, and 
it's called a wet market because often they are wet. Um, one of the ways that these markets get cleaned down, not all of them, but some of them, is that they would hose down the floor. And so that's one reason why it's wet. Also in the uh, fish and seafood markets, often ice is used for packing them. And so that also okay, so, causes them to be wet. So I'm just, I'm just being macabre. It's not wet because it's drenched in the blood of, you know, uh, of chickens or something. It's, it's wet because of ice from seafood and from washing it down afterwards. Exactly. And actually, one of the confusions about these wet markets is that they don't all have live animals. Um, it's very uncommon for them to have wildlife animals and even less common for those to be exotic wildlife animals. Um, one of the things I always make a point here in the United States talking to people about wet markets is that this is actually a normal way for people to get food. In Asia, in Europe, um, in most places outside of the United States, um, people don't do one-stop shop shopping at a supermarket. Uh, it's more common for them to go every couple of days. They want to get fresh, cheap food, and the best places to do that are often these local vendors. <laughs> it's an amazing conversation. Imagine a world in which not everything is bought at a Winn-Dixie. <laughs> Imagine a world where not everything is packaged and sanitized and saran wrapped. That's, that's the other thing. Is it even 100% certain that we know that wet markets were the, the, the beginning point of, of this pandemic? That's a great question, actually. Um, so the reason there is all of this interest in wet markets is because there is a, uh, a wet market, the Hunan Seafood Wholesale Market in the city of Wuhan, um, had... A bunch of people who were among the first that China identified as um, testing positive for the coronavirus. Um, now, since then, alternative hypotheses have come out. One of them, there is a, a lab that, that studies other coronaviruses, and so some people have speculated it might have accidentally gotten out. Most scientists say this is probably unlikely, but it's a possibility. I also think you can't rule out the possibility of habitat incursion. There are colonies of bats near um, near these cities, and it's possible that people had moved into the, those environments and gotten exposed that way. So there's a lot of uncertainty about where it might have come from. I think one of the reasons why this story has circulated um, is because in a pandemic, when these kinds of threats are coming, it's really common for people to want to look for some way to say that this is not going to affect me. Um, so they very quickly look to, for some evidence that this is because of some other thing, some other people. And so people looked at in the United States and in Europe said, oh, it's these wet markets. Um, it's these weird, bizarre Chinese habits um, with food and what they eat. This isn't us. I mean, it was a way to sort of scapegoat their anxieties. The danger in this, of course, is that it causes people to ignore how their own cultures have these risks. It also causes them not to take uh, measures to protect themselves from the epidemic. And so many places were slow to respond to the outbreaks in their own country. I think you had uh, mentioned Leal, the famous uh, food market in the center of Paris, as, as an example of, of how we have lost touch with, uh, with this mode of shopping uh, as, as city urban planners have come through to gentrify and kind of clear out the, the messy, noisy, organic <laughs> you know, chaos that any great market necessarily includes. What have we lost here in the West in moving away from this style of shopping and, and, uh, and eating? 
you lose that sense of community. Um, for the family businesses, they can't live elsewhere. Often they live near where these markets are. I mean, it's not practical for them to, to move their stand to the new markets. Um, so it's often the end of those family businesses. The food markets are deeply integrated into the local communities, and, and that's one thing that gets lost. Another thing that gets lost is I think in consumers, uh, and especially in the United States, but you can see this happening in Europe as well, lose a sense of where their food comes from. So um, in the past, the, the, the wet market or the, the food market would have been um, at the entry point of cities. So it would have been at ports or riverways. The food would have been there. If they had live animals, people would have seen the animals. If they didn't, they at least would have seen you know, the, the animal carcass and had a sense of where the what, what the food and the meat was coming from. As that gets moved backstage outside of cities, um, like the way we have it in the United States, people instead are seeing package-wrapped foods, and they don't have a sense of where that food is coming from. And it often, these moves, because they're pushed by the city, they often favor uh, certain companies, often bigger companies, over the smaller smaller uh, vendors' interest. So it also contributes to, to that change. There's like a long you know, a, a century-long battle uh, for primacy in terms of shopping habits. Do you do you think wet markets will survive, or are we doomed to kind of a, a corporate um, supermarket culture, you know, throughout the world? I hope wet market culture survives. I also think there's an... So I think there is a growth in supermarkets uh, in Asia, and I'm sure that after this crisis, they will probably be the most more successful than a lot of these wet markets because um, they're larger companies, they have the kind of cash reserves to handle the kind of crisis, they're more likely to take their business online. So even in China, there's been a growth in online shopping. Um, and they're probably going to capitalize off the concern about safety in wet markets um, and the perception that if you package food and you process food, it's safer. And I say perception because again, there are plenty of outbreaks in the United States that we've had in terms of packaged produce um, or in terms of meat that can be traced back to our highly industrial system. So it's not, it's not unique to wet markets. Um, that said, I hope that wet markets will continue. And there is some sort of ir irony in that there is a growth and an interest in these kinds of markets. Um, it's, they're, they're popular with tourists. You can see this with Pike Place in, in Seattle. Um, so they're popular tourists because it's a kind of more, it seemed to be a romantic, authentic way of getting a sense of local food culture. Um, there's a lot of interest in farmers markets in the United States because people want to have a kind of more connection to the people who actually produce food. Right. So I think even though the big story looks like the rise of supermarkets and the disappearance of these markets, I think there, there will be a continuance of them. Final question for you. What is your favorite wet market in Auburn, Alabama? Uh, we do not have very many wet markets here in Auburn, Alabama. It's interesting. It, uh, we are a big ag school, um, so we do have some farmer's markets, um, but our farmer's markets are done more in the style of supermarket than, or grocery than they are uh, as a wet market. So it's actually something that we're lacking here. Now, we do at the university, we have what's called a meat lab where they study uh, how to raise cows for, for meat, and they actually sell sell meat and so um, you can buy from their their store you can get meat that they butchered uh, or slaughtered the day before hot damn the meat lab all right mm -hmm. well i'm going to take that as the answer then 
Next time I make it down to Alabama, I will go to Auburn, and you and I will just head on down to the meat lab. (laughs) I first met Ro Vasquez through her partner, the music promoter and graphics guru Ahmed Batista. I've got it bad for both of them, I must admit, to the point where I couldn't even imagine a trip to Mexico City without being cradled in the warmth of their knowledge of all things food, music, and culture. Roe is also one of the brightest voices in the worldwide movement toward ethical tourism and is the founder of Eat Like a Local, an all-female market tour group that sets itself apart, not least for its deep and genuine connection with the families who live and work at the markets of Mexico City. She's talking to me now from her apartment in the Roma district. So you and I were talking about this, but you you had gotten sick uh, and you had been leading tours with people from places like New York and you had someone from Wuhan, is that right? Well, that was in December, so probably, well, maybe I got sick in December, who knows? Uh, but yeah, I have people from Wuhan, from California. I have a lot of people from Asia, from different parts of Asia, from... New York a lot is my main city. Uh, New Yorkers yeah. love Mexico City. So yeah, probably, I don't know who. And your whole team got it too, right? Yeah, the whole team, the whole team got it. I was the worst because I have um, pre-existing conditions in my lungs. So I spent like 20 days in bed. It was, it was bad, but yeah, it's not that bad now. Have you been kind of creeping back out into, into the streets a little bit or what does lockdown look like for you? Uh, I have been going out with the dogs because we need to walk them and I have yeah. also pay a visit to the markets because I, I need to check on them. In Mexico, sadly, people don't believe that this is something that is real. And hmm. a lot of people in the markets, they just, they just think that this is a hoax or something like that. So I keep like paying visits like, dudes, this is really serious. You should be careful. I mean, are you using your own personal story? You were sick for 20 days. You're young and healthy. That's got to scare them a little bit, no? Yes, but no. Like, they, they, they don't believe it. They don't believe it. It's, it's really weird. Uh, we have really weird theories. They, in Mexico, I don't know if you heard this, it's really strange, but they think that they're putting people in hospitals to steal their anise liquid. Have you heard that? I don't know how they call it, like this liquid that you have in your knees. Uh, because apparently it's very valuable. It's more valuable than gold and platinum and diamonds. And so people are stealing, the, the doctors are stealing or knees liquid, I don't know how it's called, and they sell it for a lot of money. Oh, <laughs> it makes me feel better as an American because, as you know, we have a lot of bullshit ideas rolling around here. But I have not heard the knee kneecap fluid theory. Yeah, it's it's weird. So people not they don't want to go to the hospitals or they don't believe that this is happening. They're closing markets now, so they don't have another choice. They just have to close. But the ones that are on the street, they just keep working. The big markets have been closed now, but not that long, right? Just for, they closed it down for Mother's Day? Not not every market, but for example, the flower market where I work the most, because people want to buy flowers for their mothers. So they close it down from May 7th to May 17th. So it's going to, and then it'll reopen again. They're going to reopen again. But a lot of stalls are closed. Uh, de- well, 
I don't know if it definitely, but for example, the corn stall where I buy the skites, they close since April first week. Uh, the Higama stall also closed. They they're not making a lot of money, so they're closing down. Yeah, and I mean, and and it's so. I mean, the Hikama stall is the one with the galaxy of rainbow-colored uh, sugars uh, that you put on the slices of a Hikama, right? Exactly, and that's very dangerous because the, all the powders are exposed, you know? It's right. I mean, it's so much of what makes that market in particular, but I think all Mexican markets great, is what make them what would seem to make them so vulnerable to this. You know, it's like such such close quarters, such intimate contact with the people who are feeding you uh, and everything out in the open with, you know, not a single sneeze guard in sight. Um. <laughs> yeah, we're trying to, to talk to them. Instead. We're trying to find like this kind of salt shakers, but bigger. And maybe we can put all the powders in these salt shakers. We would need to rethink how we do street food, but I think that is possible. How are the markets doing? I mean, how are the people handling the shutdown and, and their families? It's really hard. They're not making a lot of money. In Mexico, we live by day, like especially La Merced. Uh, I don't know if you knew, but they had a huge fire in December. 60% of the market was lost and they need to repair the market. So in order to repair the market, they have to relocate another 60% of the people. It's like 800 families that need to be relocated. So it's devastating. It's really devastating for La Merced. Last days of January, they decided that it was damaged and they needed to evacuate everybody. So since then, they have been selling nothing. I started organizing tours for taking people to shop. Mexicans, there were like 20 people shopping like crazy so they could make more money. But now we, we can't do that because uh, we can't be with 20 people. <laughs> so let's see. It's going to be a while, obviously, before tourism returns and you start taking, you know, visitors through the market again. But meanwhile, there's a lot of work to do just to make the market safe for locals. Is that the next the next step of your involvement with them? Uh, actually, that's what I was doing since December. It was a, a project called Regresemos a la Merced or, Re, or Regresemos a Jamaica. It's basically called, let's go back to the markets. Because I don't know if you know this, but gentrification is killing markets. People don't want to shop at the market. They're going to go to the supermarket that is closer to their homes. So they're losing a lot of clients. And these ones are two big markets. But in Mexico, we have more than 300 markets. And it's getting very complicated for them. So what I'm trying to do is to make people go again to the markets and shop. But I think that it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. You go to Walmart and you don't know who is the guy that is selling this stuff, who's going to get the money. But in the market, you can see the guy. So I'm telling them their stories and they get to sit with them and drink beers with the pancita lady or they get a tlacoyo with the lady that makes the best tlacoyos ever and they sit and they talk to her. And these connections are making them understand that the market is, is not just like a shopping place. It's more a cultural experience and a place where a lot of people live. And this makes them want to go again and shop as Mexicans. If this pandemic were not happening and it was everything is normal and you had one one stall that you could go to one thing that you could eat what would it be oh the chicken tacos <laughs> they disappear i don't know if you remember this that's why i, I want to find this guy again his name is antonio and he makes the best chicken ever it's a very soft and, and juicy chicken when the taco is done he cuts a little piece of crispy skin and he places it on top 
And then he has this chipotle sauce that is wonderful with a little bit of lime and salt. And it's the best taco that you will try in your life. It's juicy and perfect and so flavorful. I have his phone. He's not answering because he's always hitting on me and he has a wife. So probably he's like, no. <laughs> probably he's like, no, no, no. With my wife here in quarantine in my home, I don't want to answer the phone. <laughs> if you're listening, Antonio, cut the bullshit. Just get back to making your chicken tacos, please. As soon as possible. Or make it at home and sell it to us. We, we can pick it up. Like, we don't care. <laughs> All right. It's so nice to talk to you, Ro. Uh, I miss you guys, and I feel better knowing that you're out there looking after the markets while all this is going down. Yeah, well, it's my family. We have to take care of each other because we won't survive if we don't do it like that. It seems like a couple of lifetimes ago, but it was in fact just last year that I went with this podcast in tow, actually, to Chiang Mai, Thailand for Andy Ricker and Kun Narada's wedding. It was an excellent weekend, just the right combination of the sacred and the profane, laced with absurdly good food throughout. That is where I met Ricker's friend, Austin Bush, a writer and photographer whose recent cookbook, The Food of Northern Thailand, was a Beard Award finalist. I'm talking to Austin from his longtime home in Bangkok. I mean, usually when when the world is free and, and you are out there in the wild doing what you do, you're traveling a lot, obviously, through northern Thailand, as you did for your book, but also places like Laos and, and other parts of Southeast Asia. But do you do some of that adventuring in Bangkok, too? And is some of that still been available at all to you? If I'm being totally honest, I've lived in Bangkok a long time now, like 21 years. And I don't know if you have this feeling, but the, the kind of longer you live in a place, the more less interested you are in kind of exploring that place. So I've kind of succumbed to that a little bit here in Bangkok. Well, it's funny. I mean, if Bangkok was a sort of respite from your travels, it's now both your respite and your travels, right? <laughs> like you, yeah. I, I took this long, unnecessary bike ride into Corona, Queens, the, you know, the kind of the, the most Puebla neighborhood in New York, uh -huh. just because that's as close as I'm going to get to fucking Mexico for a while, you know? <laughs> now that things are opening up, like last night I went to Chinatown, which is sort of opening up. There were people out and, you know, there's some sort of social dis dis distancing measures and things like that. And stalls have this weird like plastic um, <laughs> barrier in front of them. So things aren't 100% normal, but, but, you know, starting to get back there. Um, but but they still have, are they arraying like the, you know, the, the, the cheap plastic stools uh, along in front of somebody cooking grilled chicken on a skewer is that but now just with a big plastic tent in front of them or <laughs> the plastic tent thing I don't really understand they, I think the idea is if you um, are like a solo diner you can sit on one side of the table and someone else you 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 may not know is able to sit on the other side I think but if you come as a couple, <laughs> I think you still have to be divided by this weird plastic barrier thing. So I don't really understand the logic. Last night, I went to this stall that I love. I've been eating at for years. And it wasn't quite clear, you know, they didn't have these weird plastic dividers. And I wasn't quite sure of the seating situation. So I sat down at this table that was kind of close to another table. 
and sitting there waiting for my food. And all of a sudden, the owner comes by and she's like, "Okay, we, the, they're they're coming to inspect our our stall. Uh, we, you guys need to move." And they quickly sort of like ask this table to like pull the the table farther away from me and like spread things out. And people are asked to kind of go to the sides and stuff like that. So it's all very I don't know, kind of impromptu as well. It's uh, it's nice to know that the you know the street vigilance is still out there to kind of narc out the inspectors as they <laughs> make their rounds, so the vendors can stay one step ahead of them. Yeah, right. They they must have informants or something. <laughs> I was just I was just watching uh, Australian sixty minutes, which had a fairly breathless uh, investigative report about you know wet markets that were still operating. In Bangkok, um, I don't know if they were talking about Chattachak or something. I, I I didn't get that deep in the weeds. But do you have any sense from you know just being in Thailand, uh, reading and watching local media that this will affect some of the the foodways in, in the country on on any lasting level? Will it shift more to supermarket or corporatized kind of supply chains? Thailand has been hit so lightly by this that. I, I don't think it's really impacted markets in particular, but there's been this general trend over the last couple of decades of, of Thai people kind of to a certain degree shifting away from, from the traditional wet market. There's these like uh, Tesco Lotus and Big C, these kind of like uh, super hypermarkets, supermarkets that are um, going into provincial towns, provincial capitals. And perceived as taking business away from mom and pop and privately owned businesses. And there's been a lot of, um, not so much lately, because I, I think, frankly, people have kind of become used to them or like them. But initially, maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there's a lot of protest. Um, I do remember, I don't know, I, I think I, I, I lived in Anyawalat, actually, in Chinatown for a month in 2003. I mean, which you were already uh, well ensconced in Bangkok by then, but it's sure is a long time ago uh, in my mind. But I remember going to Chattachak a few times and just seeing seeing creatures that I didn't know existed. You know, uh-huh. sort of rodentia, rodentia and mammalia <laughs> of all kinds. Um, I I haven't been back since then. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is now seventeen years ago. Is 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 it still something that you will find? You know, this kind of this mashup of, of, you know, exotic pet slash bush meat uh, market along with a regular place to buy spices and chicken wings? I think that aspect of it has really, really been pushed underground. Like I sort of recall that I, I came here in 98 and I kind of recall that stuff too. And Jatujak in particular was like, my understanding was, it, it was that that was where you could buy sort of pet wildlife but also eating wildlife and it was sort of generally known but not really legal i think you knew had you know you had to know where to look or the right guy to talk to or whatever but it was a thing there i think that's uh been driven like entirely underground in in bangkok at least there's a couple um markets in northern thailand i'm aware of that are kind of famous for that i don't know you know the legality of it or whatever but you can get you know wild animals and bushmeat and stuff like that but in bangkok like i wouldn't even know where to get that now i think you'd have to you have to have a guy have to have a connection 
Right, or a 60 Minutes Australia producer <laughs> wearing wearing a body camera and uh, you know speaking in hushed tones, oh, I guess. I'll have to look this um, up. So they they went to a market in Bangkok or or somewhere else. I uh, you know, I I'm I'm I guess I'm somewhat uninterested in the narrative, which is why I didn't really power through more than the, <laughs> you know, the the introduction to it, but I I personally am very much aligned with what you were saying before it's like the it all feels like the real trends that we need to worry about or it's not bat soup but um how supermarkets are taking over uh the the food chain mm -hmm. you know i mean yeah all of these kind of systemic issues that are going to be there in full relief when we get out of this don't actually have to do with this part of it you know mm -hmm. um so and that, I, I guess that's a long answer for like <laughs> I don't fucking know. I didn't I didn't watch the thing to the end. Well, that's definitely a thing that's happening here in Thailand as well. Like I I feel like it's it's food uh, infrastructure is becoming more American like. There are these big companies that are following these American models of you know giant slaughterhouses and you know like almost monopolies of meat production. Um, uh, you know, like I said earlier, these supermarkets that are becoming more ubiquitous, like pe Thai people want modern, nice, clean, tidy stuff as well, you know. Um, but I think right now both of these things exist in Thailand. You have, you know, these companies like CP that have huge slaughterhouses and, and huge interests in, you know, like certain commodities. Or you can go to markets upcountry where it's more, you know, done on a mom and pop scale or things come from small farms it's a little bit of both but the latter is like i can just feel that it's kind of being phased out and pushed out let's imagine the pandemic is over where would you want to go first and and what what would be the thing that you'd want to eat in thailand or or just anywhere uh anywhere break free <laughs> this is this is a totally hypothetical reality <laughs> since right. we're all trapped so i well, i mean for someone who writes about food and travel i have shockingly never been to italy and i'd love to go to sicily and i saw this is one of these cheesy promotional things but i guess the sicilian tourism board is if you're willing to go there you know early on they're going to pay for a third of your flight and hotel or something like that one of those deals so I don't know if I could justify it, but I'd be interested in taking them up on that. Dude, a third, huh? Yeah. Let's go. Let's do it. I know. I was, <laughs> I was supposed to I was supposed to go there in September for oh, uh, wow. some, I think, yeah, some symposium or something, you know, I, whatever. Uh, the skulls of many of my plans have been dashed against the rocks, but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that one, that one really hurt. All right, Austin. Well, it was so good to talk to you, and uh, even even just hearing your voice takes me back to some very happy memories uh, out, out there at Ricker's wedding. So those kind of things are sustaining, I'll say that. All right, man. Good to talk to you, too. A half-Mexican California-born bluesman turned writer who lives with a badass Polish photojournalist in the heroic city of Tbilisi, Georgia, and knows the central market there up and down like a pentatonic scale. Having friends like Paul Rimple just makes me feel more like the person I always wanted to be in the world. He was with Bourdain on Parts Unknown's Georgia episode, he leads market tours and writes for Culinary Backstreets, and he's now talking to me from his country home 
an hour outside of Tbilisi. Where are you? Uh, I am in Garikula. It's our village place. We've been hiding out here for weeks, waiting for the, the storm to pass. Tell me about, about the markets, what part of your life they were before the pandemic in Tbilisi. Well, yeah, so before the pandemic, the, the market was, um, I was basically making, making my living taking you know, tourists to the central bazaar in, in Tbilisi, working with culinary backstreets. The bazaar, it's, about, it's over 100 years old, and the legend is that um, deserters from the Tsar's army used to go there, and uh, they would sell their equipment and, before they'd you know, run back home to the villages in the mountains or wherever. And so um, it's been called the Deserters' Bazaar because of that. It's, it's raw and it's still chaotic, even though, you know, in the past, let's see, since you were there, it's, it's even, they kind of, they've tried, they've tried their best to civilize a place. I mean, before, when I first arrived there, it was, it was just total chaos and, um, and, you know, lawlessness, you know, you, you were bound to get your pocket picked. If you tried to exchange money anywhere around there, they're going to try and rip you off. You really had to be careful about that. And I mean, I found that kind of stuff exciting and, and fun to be around. Um, but, uh, but then the government, it was around 2006, the government tried to civilize the place and they tore down this old Soviet building that was the epicenter of the, the market. Inside, you know, the, you had the butchers and the, and the uh, flower ladies and the spice ladies and, and little stands selling you know, really bad wine and, and rot gut cha-cha and stuff like that. And, uh, and it was all inside and it was just so fun to just hang out and sip some cha-cha and, and watch everybody. And, you know, it was like, it was an acid trip without the acid. They, they, the government knocked that place down. Everyone that was working there were displaced and they found little nooks and crannies around the, the, the territory. And it was actually quite quite tragic for a lot of people because so many people that are working there today are displaced people from the Abkhazian war in, you know, in the early 90s. So it was a, another round of displacement for them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, speaking of Abkhazia, I mean, Suhumi still has that, that old Soviet style, um, which you're right, is just a, it's a very specific kind of market. Uh, and, you know, it 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 somehow the evolution of how the vendors brought their things in and how they display them and how they you know put the beef hearts on hooks <laughs> right at eye level you know it all kind of works together really well and that's an organic process right people have to grow into this space and I can imagine that's uh, that's not happening in the new in the new in the new place no there's an the adjacent building which was built in I, I guess around maybe. The, turn early 20th century and you still get a, a the flavor of what the old place was like i mean one time I, I took a group of people there and as we're walking up the stairs you just heard this like a uh like, like a big brawl like the sound the, it's a really distinct sound you know like a fist against skull and this kind of thing you know that that slapping sound and then all the commotion and the guests were were shocked and uh 
to see that the butchers were in the middle of this big butcher brawl, like West Side Story style. With with cleavers or without? No, I asked later, I asked, you know, what was that fight about? And none of my butcher friends knew. No one could tell me what the fight was about. It just happened. And I said, well, you know, that's kind of crazy because you guys have those knives. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no knives. You know, in Georgia... When you pull a knife, you use it. You don't just clown around with knives. You don't threaten someone with a knife. You use it. And one of my one of my favorite things about Georgia are the the constant and sort of bottomless well of man codes. Yeah, <laughs> that they have there. Now now I have another to add to it. Uh, you don't just pull out a knife uh, without using it. Yeah. Um, there we go. Man man code section forty two uh, dash B. Um, so. So, I mean, you you had mentioned that the, the market, you know, one of its defining characteristics, I think the wor- first word you used was raw. That does kind of speak to me, these kind of big slabs of meat, giant, you know, wheels of cheese, um, wine, not in, you know, dainty 750 milliliter bottles, but in giant aquifers, <laughs> you know, kind of lined up. Uh, it's this this expression of bounty, I guess, that makes it so appealing. Because I like to take people for a wine tasting down, there's a, like a grotto um, of the wine section. And it's, it's really, it's really, really low down. I mean, it's really raw and there's no running water. And so, you know, but uh, Lolly, she's my, my bartender there with, it's telling me that the government is planning to, to close that section, which for me is a tragedy because uh, it's a r- real crucial link of when you're looking at the, the whole spectrum of, of the drinking culture. Because when 18, 20 years ago when I first came here, the tradition of sipping wine was never a thing. It was, you know, you drink to guzzle. You, if you're going to have a party, and a, a dinner party, and you want some wine you got to figure you have to go find some place where you can get three liters of wine per person. That's kind of how you, you, you figure it out. And, um, and the bazaar was one of these places. If you didn't have a friend or a relative in the village and you needed some wine for a party, you bring your empty jugs or they give you their used plastic jugs and you, know, and you fill up on really crappy wine for chugging. Three liters per person. That is a hell of a arithmetic so lolly who is is your kind of personal hookup in this space is saying it's going to close now yeah because the it's hard that i guess the health department has issues understandably so um but i think it's also hard for to to collect tax on that it's not like you know they have cash registers there i mean this Mm. this is a spot and it's for the workers you know so you know sometimes the butcher my butcher buddy Aliyev will take me down there, you know, and treat me to a, a glass of something called cognac, you know, and you pay, you know, maybe 50 tetri or a couple lari. So at the, at the, you're paying like 50 cents for a, a drink, like a, a beer yeah. mug full of wine. And this is getting shut down because in part because of the pandemic or this was happening no this before? was this was happening just before the bazaar was was operating for about a week after that um everyone is practicing self-isolation but about the time the government uh declared a state of emergency all the outdoor markets uh closed down yeah it's real drag because um 
you know, the alternative now is to go into, if you go to one of the big supermarkets like Carrefour, but, you know, during a pandemic, I'd rather take my chances outside than, you know, inside a, a supermarket with a bunch of people. Yeah, it almost feels like um, a propaganda war, you know, between who gets to f- define themselves as clean and and sanitary and safe and the, the supermarkets are winning that propaganda war regardless of whether or not that's true now clearly not having running water is is an issue yeah <laughs> but those things can be solved you know yeah uh the enclosed nature and the sort of you know soulless uh supply chain of of even a nice car for like like the one you guys have in tbilisi like that's a that's a structural issue that that uh, feels like a false, falsely safe haven. So so they shut down the village markets bazaars as well too. Yeah. So our we have a we have a bazaar here that's open every Sunday, and it's one of my favorite places in the world because it's uh, you know, for it's not just a, a bazaar where you can buy you know if you need a chicken or a sheep or you know some meat that's been whacked off with a hatchet, you know, and, and some really great local, locally grown produce. It's, it's also like, you know, Sunday, it's the social gathering. You know, my neighbor, Zachar, he's the 70-year-old um, retired bus driver who, you know, for him, that's when he, he takes a bath and he goes and hangs out with his buddies, you know, to catch up on the local gossip. They closed the bazaar um right before we got here so this was before the the other markets in 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 the cities closed so they were kind of like they they somebody had the the foresight to to close this because you know it's being a social gathering spot it's you know it's kind of like a a a petri dish (laughs) for yeah for viruses how will this pandemic change the way that Georgians shop or will it uh, is, is the vision to get back to the idea of central bazaars and having an important part in Georgian life? Uh, it's an eco- a question of economics, really, for so many people. You know, we have neighbors in the city that really can't afford to go to the supermarkets. You know, they they do the shopping every week at the bazaar and, you know, they they need that. The bazaar is still the, the main spot, and I don't think that's going to change. Let's uh, let's 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 hold that thought in our mind, and and uh, this this being the month that I was supposed to have gone to Georgia to see this in person, we'll uh, we'll push that sometime into the hopefully not too distant future. Yeah, I can't. I really can't wait to to show you around. Um, but you know, we I remember we explored the uh, the bazaar together, and. Um, and the, I still have this memory, and I share it sometimes with some of our guests, how we went down there and we went down to the, uh, let's, to the dive, to the grotto for a, a drink. And I remember yeah. we just had, seems to me we only had maybe two, two glasses of wine. And somehow we, we, we left that spot kind of like floating. We weren't even touching the ground as we were walking out. <laughs> and this was after you know we were consuming about three liters of wine a piece the night before, and uh, and I don't know how they managed to get us so wasted after just two glasses, but that's that's the mystery of the bazaar. I I remember that just that little touch of antifreeze that they put in there <laughs> that uh, 
<laughs> no, I I think uh, I mean fuck it, man. It's a it's a very natural high to be there to be there with you to uh, to just be swimming in all of the sensations of of that market in particular in Georgia in general. I mean, uh, it, 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 you know, you're you're high stepping off the plane. The trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Theme music by Dan the Automator. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Thank you to Paul Rempel this week for that audio of Jumber Fucking Up a Lamb. We are free and available on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever market stall you like to get your podcast from. Next week, I will be shooting the shit with people I like around the world. Again, I hope we'll meet you there.